Indio. I'm so pleased to have you on the cast tonight. We have my friend Harry Indio Ramkishan, and he's a filmmaker. He's a cinematographer. He's written scripts. He's done it all. And he's also the co-founder of the Bronx Filmmakers Collective. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, like you said, uh, I am the owner-operator of Guy Rican Productions, uh, my small independent video production company that's Bronx-based. I am the co-founder, uh, a co-founder of the Bronx Filmmakers Collective, which we founded in 2012, and we are currently a nonprofit. And uh, what else? I do sports production uh, for many, many years now, and I do that as a freelancer as well. So I'm a camera operator for live sports, Knicks, Rangers, college, uh, and started in the high school realm. So I have done that. And... I've written, directed, and produced one short film for myself, and I've been the director of photography on countless others for um, friends, paid gigs, and all of the above. Thanks. And I know it's very strange times with everything that's going on, but I do believe that this will pass. It's uh, it's. It's horrible what's going on with many people's families and things. So I don't. I do want to address the elephant in the room at the moment because, you know, it's it's a somber time in a lot of ways. But I do think that this is also a time where we could focus in on, you know, some creative ideas to get us past this thing and things that have been sort of fermenting. You know, at least that's that's what I've been doing. I've been using it as a time to, aside from spending time with my family, but also doing some screenwriting, doing some thinking about the next projects that I would like to do, thinking about things and topics and production-related things that I want to learn about and, you know, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, you know that's that's what I've been hearing from a lot of other people, too, that are, you know, they're, they're just trying to use this as a reset. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a bunch of my friends who are writers, directors, cinematographers, and everyone is, is saying the same, unless they're out there and doing, you know, the essential work that they need to do. Um, like on my, I also have a podcast, as, like, you know, uh, the Scene and Take podcast. Yeah. But um, my last podcast, I spoke to D Delgado and my friend Trevon Blundet. And D is actually a freelance photographer. So he's out, he's been out there seeing the front lines with, you know, the hospitals. He actually just did a bunch of photos out in um, Heart Island. And, um, you know, it's it's devastating here, especially in New yeah. York, you know, being the uh, yeah. the epicenter of it, it all. But everybody's a great keeping... photographer. Yeah, yeah. Yvonne as well. Yeah. Not yeah. for his work. And he's a great guy as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we were talking about that. But, you know, just generally speaking, everybody's just trying to stay busy, um, as much as they can, as much as they can, you know, a lot of people are trying to learn a new skill. I know I am trying to mess with still photography now a little bit more in um, setting my day, scheduling my day to do a little bit of writing, uh, my podcast, editing that, and things like that. Since I'm the only one here, you know, so um, yeah, so um, you know, and I'm getting some traction too, little ways on on the podcast with just different guests that want to jump on that you know that are yeah that have some, some note, you know, and 
you've been doing your thing. You, Vinio has a great podcast, so definitely subscribe to the Scene and Take podcast because it's a fantastic one. So I wanted. To, I'm glad you mentioned the sports stuff that you do too, because I definitely want to pick your brain about that a little bit, because that's definitely fascinating. And I also have met a lot of students over the years that want to get into that type of thing. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got into that, and maybe um, any advice that you can. But but first, I want to jump right into some some questions from the students, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And no, Michael has a question and it's when you're watching a movie and you're trying to learn about film and as filmmakers, I think we're all doing that. And so I want to talk about this too, but when you're watching a film to sort of study it, what details do you look for? Yeah. So, um, there's a kind of a two-step process that I personally do when I'm looking at, you know, a film to study one, I just want to watch it you know, without giving too much analysis to it, just looking at the story, the characters, you know, just, just what, what's the movie yeah. about, right? And then... Same, same here. Yeah, so, you know, once the credit end credits roll, it's, you know, did I like this movie? Did, did it do anything to my psyche to be like, you know, did I escape into another world for two hours? You know, did I forget everything around me? Did I get myself involved into that that world that I just saw, right? And so, yeah. and that's that's that feeling, right? You, oh man, this was a good movie, right? When when exactly. when you say, oh man, this was this was an awesome movie. Okay, now go back to see what made it awesome for you. Why was this film good? Why did it resonate with me, right? So the first thing I'll do is actually. I'll turn off the audio for the first 10 minutes and I just want to watch the visuals. And this is kind of the cinematography in me, right? Um, I just want to see what's happening. And this is also akin to me loving foreign films. And I don't know necessarily know all the languages. I know and understand Spanish because I'm half Puerto Rican. So, you know, that I can, I can get the, uh, the dialogue with there, but if it's Italian, French, there's a little bit words here and there I can I can grasp. But over, overall, I want to watch the first 10 minutes and see how it grabs me into it. And then I'll just stop it, go back, then play the music, see what the what the sound design is like, what the soundtrack is like. And then as I'm watching it, I'm going to be watching uh, for certain things. Visually, the movement. What are the camera movements? Uh, why do I like these you know, movements that they're doing. Sometimes in action sequences, even it's the, the, if I'm feeling jarred, like, oh my God, what is happening or whatever, but it's a fighting similar to what happens in the Bourne Identity and the, the Bourne Trilogy uh, when they did a lot of yeah. uh, in-between handheld and steady cam stuff um, and, you know, ramped up the, uh, the shutter speed. That stuff I like, you know, because it's it's giving you that sense of, uh, of urgency in in what you're seeing and and the fighting that's happening, uh, location. I always I travel, but if I could see places and be immersed in it without being there, that's the next best thing, right? So I always looked at locations and see what they do with that location because we obviously are only seeing the field of view of that lens that they have on the camera, right? And then uh, thirdly, yeah. I think uh, visually it's this the color palette. How were the colors combined? How did the colors 
represent certain things, um, moods in, in, in the picture, according to what the storyline is about. And so those are the things that I'm, I'm looking for and I'm studying and, you know, write a couple notes. Yeah, th- those are all fantastic yeah. things. Um, are you also, mm-hmm. I know I, as a filmmaker, I, I, I co-sign on everything that Indio said, including just watching a movie the first time. Uh, I'm the same exact way. Like if I'm really studying a film, the first time I want to watch it, I don't want to overthink too many things about those elements. I just want to give it one watch. Was I, did I respond to it or not? Same, same thing. And was I entertained by it on, on a very binary level? Was it entertaining? You know, on that level, was it entertaining? You know, and then beyond that, did it move you? Did it have some sort of emotional resonance, some sort of story importance, performances that just blew you away, anything like that? Then upon subsequent viewings, I usually look for the six elements that I learned from William Goldman, and I've heard him talk about it on on a audio commentary for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was a famous screenwriter, and he wrote Adventures in the Screen uh, uh, Adventures in the screen trade. I think that was the title of the book. And he also, aside from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he did The Princess Bride and some some other great movies. He's re- widely regarded as one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. Just a really interesting guy. And even his interviews were just so valuable. And he said uh, that a film has to have six elements. So the six elements are a good story, so which is a good script, a good screenplay, good acting, good sound design, good cinematography, obviously, good editing, and good overall direction. And sometimes I think the direction is sort of like the egg and the meatloaf, you know, binds a lot of those other elements together, you know. And so I I look for those. And I will say, personally, lately, I've been looking a lot at sound design a lot more closely, you know, listening, because I think cinema is a visual experience but it's also an audio experience and i think a lot of filmmakers that are starting out kind of they just kind of gloss over that on their shorts and i'm sure indio you've seen all kinds of things no doubt that you've seen amateur films and you notice that sometimes they might be beautifully shot and they they might have skimmed over on uh having them recorded properly (laughs) absolutely i mean you know Sound is such an important aspect, even now with cell phones, you know, everybody. Look, you are a filmmaker. If you plan your attack, you have a great story, and it doesn't matter if it's on an Alexa, if it's on a Samsung or an iPhone. If you prepare and you put it together right, it, it just doesn't matter what that tool is going to be, right? And... The sound, though, when you add that component into it, that's the icing on the cake. And oftentimes as independent filmmakers, and granted, this is, you know, kind of learn as you go. Like in the beginning, it wasn't, you know, sound design wasn't really something I thought of or whatever. And then you realize like, oh, okay, you know, you take for granted when you see a great movie and you see, uh, you know, you see the the woman walking down the corridor and you hear those heels, right? And it's just something yeah. about hearing that that kind of 
puts you there like you're in that hallway, you know? And it's just right. those little exactly. intricacies that are so important. And, you know, I think, too, even if it's just a, a essentially a, a, a fictional world, you know, sci-fi and, and stuff like that, like Star Trek, when they did the the most recent Star Treks, I mean, the sound design on those are incredible. And to listen to them at the movie theater, obviously, is going to be a way better experience. But fortunately yeah. for me, I have, you know, the ability, like, we all have, you know, the flat screens and stuff like that. And oftentimes their speakers are, you know, crappy. Even, you know, just getting a sound bar or whatever, it's, it's okay. But I have headphones, Sennheisers that I put on and I'm getting the audio from, you know, from whatever source that I'm, I'm watching and you can just hear it in your headphones so much better and it enhances that experience. And you all know from like horror movies or whatever, famously Halloween with the, with the piano keys, you know, something eerie about that. So having sound design is imperative and to think about that in post-production is always going to be, you know, something that you want to pay attention to, but in pre-production and in production, you want to make sure that those elements are there as real as you can get. You know, I mean, we don't have as independent filmmakers, the ability to ADR too much and to order up a, a Foley team to, you know, to do those sounds, those little itty bitty sounds. I mean, we can do it ourselves. And oftentimes we do when we take the time to do it. And again, it's, so, it's about that preparation for all of those things. And again, that's the icing on the cake. So you want to make sure that you have on your list sound design as one of those things you're going to pay attention to during the process. Well said. I agree with it all. We're going to and I just want to add to that point that kind of what India was talking about that you took, take for granted. I, I was totally, totally in that same boat. I mean, cause I was learning film on my early shorts, like, you know, by the seat of my pants, essentially like things that I read about, things that I learned about. I, I honestly, I wish I knew about film connections because I don't want to go to film school because I'd already went to school and I was in my twenties and, you know, it just the thought of going to a four-year school and spending God knows how much money. And I know at places like NYU, they're very discouraging about people that are getting into filmmaking. Like you're paying all this money and then they'll tell you like, you know, they're, I don't know, they're, they could just be a little off-putting. So I knew that I didn't want to go to film school, but so I started by making my own short films. And now when I look at those early shorts, you know, even though the camera could be rough, it's forgivably rough. And the stories and the acting, there, there's a lot of things that are rough that, you know, it's still kind of that I like about it. But one thing that I regret completely is that I skimmed out and didn't like hire like a, a pro sound person to be on set with us, you know, a field sound recordist, you know, and then I skimmed out on the sound. And, you know, I just want to I always try to emphasize how important that is. I always try to say, like, you know, do not skim out on that because you regret it later right. on. Absolutely. And and the one movie that I remember um always, always is always in the back of my mind. One of the films with the biggest ROI, return on investments, right? Horror movie. You might have heard of it, the Blair Witch Project. Now, visually, <laughs> nighttime, 
you know, VHS cameras, camcorders, all that stuff. The the highest paid person on that crew was the sound recordist. And they knew that the sound was going to be imperative for that movie. And that's what they put all of their money into. I didn't know that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Perfect sense. Because I did the same exact thing on The Trouble, by the way, guys. You know, so right. Indio, Indio, you're yeah. a DP, so you might be mad at me because I paid my sound guy more than the DP. But I had to. I knew I just couldn't skim out on that. And, you know, um, yeah, sometimes yeah, you could no. work out a deal with a DP because a director-DP collaboration could then, you know, be a million different things and which it has with me and Alex and I like we're practically like a team now you had a relationship with Alex so you know that that was like a given right, right? Exactly. so and that helps yeah, exactly. and, and that's was, another thing given. yeah that's another was, thing too right relationships right relationships are going to be imperative yeah. um you know I have so imperative I have, a, you know, I don't know if any of the students will know what a Rolodex is, but I have a Rolodex of, you know, figuratively of all of these professional sound guys, right? You know, field sound guys. And, um, you know, sometimes I want to do a project and, you know, I'll have to ask them for a favor and that, you know, can you bring down the, the rate a little bit for me, you know, because I know what they do on a daily basis is awesome. And I know the, the product that they're going to get and it's not going to fail me, you know, like, so it has to be something that you, you know, you definitely have to make that commitment and investment sometimes to, to be able to make sure that that's, you know, that's done. Obviously visually you want to make it right. And as a DP, you know, I wish I had, the amount of, you know, grip trucks that the big dogs have, but I know I can't. So I work with what I have, but that's not necessarily a disadvantage in my book. I think when you're uh, faced with limitations, that's when your creativity thrives. You know? yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, man. So I'm so happy you mentioned that because that is something I've been saying to students. It's going to probably sound fam familiar to a few of them, especially the current roster of people, because I've been thinking about that a lot, how limitations actually fosters creativity. And I hear even the most top tier directors like Ron Howard talking about that and people like that. Scorsese's always talked about that kind of thing, setting rules on your projects and, you know, as indie filmmakers that are doing things low to no budget, we're automatically in that category of a limitation because shooting something on such a small budget is a limitation within itself. And so I always say you can't do something fast, cheap, and good. You know, if you want it to be good and it's going to be cheap by the nature of the budget, that's a limitation. But then sometimes it requires a lot more planning and a lot more ingenuity, you know, to kind of overcome a lot of hurdles because their filmmaking is problem solving, you know, problems are going to happen, but the, the whole key to it is to be prepared, you know? So just being prepared yeah. is so important. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it doesn't take much, you know, outside of sound, but, you know, I remember the, um, the creator and director of another movie that had a huge, I think the biggest ROI in paranormal activity, he used his own home for it. All he did was repaint his house, took out the personal pictures, and just <laughs> that became his set. 
So, you know, yeah. but the, the movie was, you know, in the home, in the bedroom, whatever, you know, so, and he used his own place. So again, they it, shot it for like 30 grand. And... Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. And then it became a franchise, right? So he made yeah. a whole lot of money off of that. And not to say that that's the ultimate goal, but, you know, when you can obviously do something that you're passionate about and execute it well, and then that accolade and that, you know, financial gain comes at the end, then great, you know, but it's really about yeah. doing your best when the project is not going or done, but just getting started, because everything starts right at the beginning, before that first day of production. So we're going to jump into a question from Victor Freeman. There's a technical question about cinematography. He's asking, can you break the 180 degree rule? And when do you break it? And how? So I have a few thoughts about this, but I'd love for you to d discuss your thoughts and maybe for, I guess, um, the folks that are new to filmmaking that are on the cast, maybe give a quick rundown of the 180 rule. Right, yeah, definitely. So the short answer is yes, you can break the 180. And yes, you can do it in such a way that it's not too jarring. So basically the 180 is your field of view. If you're looking out, um, say your eyes are the camera and you're looking out, everything that you can see in front of you and to the side of you without turning your head around like the poltergeist, is that 180 degree well said. Uh, field of view. And I would just like to add to right? that, I, I think a good way to think about it is think about it if you were sitting in a theater watching a play and where you're sitting is facing outward, you know, including your peripheral vision where people, people are sitting next to you and then in front of you and then just that whole direction. That's the 180 degree field. Would you say that that's a good analogy for it? Absolutely. Everything that you can see. And I think uh, I feel, I'm, I'm blanking right now. Um, our human field of view is pretty, pretty wide. I mean, we almost pretty much have 180 actually. Um, yeah. Pretty darn close, if not 180. But uh, yeah, so just think of it as any of the camera angles that you're doing is going to be facing that one way, right? And forward, forward in front of you. So say you're having uh, a scene with two individuals and they're talking to each other, they're conversing. You have a person on your left, a person on your right. And so you want to have that wide master two shot of them talking. And so you have two people in your frame, a little bit of the background um, on a wide angle lens. Now you want to see over the shoulder of the person on the left talking. So what you're going to do is again, you don't want to, uh, go where the eyes are going to be jarred because of where you're looking. And um, I wish I had a, a, a diagram of it, but, yeah. you know, essentially you have to prepare your cuts so that when you want to break the 180, so basically you want to see what is behind the camera, you're going to have to do it in such a way that you're pretty much rotating yourself around it. So just think of it as a, as a, turntable going around um, you still want to be able to make 
those moves that are taking you in the circle. So put an imaginary circle around your, um, around your people so that you can create your shot to be able to get around to the other side without any jarring. And the easiest way, this is the cheat sheet, the easiest, easiest way to do that is to throw an insert. So you throw a tight shot of something. And so that it doesn't reflect where that 180 is anymore, because now it's a, it's a macro shot of, you know, um, the table with something on it or whatever. Let's say, and let's say if it's like it. a, right, it's the table, it could be a clock, it could be somebody just writing something down on a piece of paper and it's like a super close up. That's what's an insert, guys. And um, right. the w director, Wes Anderson, is famous for throwing a lot of inserts in his shots, but Indio's right. Uh, insert as like a transition is always a good idea so that the audience, the purpose of not breaking the rules so that the audience doesn't feel confused. Because Think about right, how, exactly. let's say a, a dialogue is filmed, right? Now, usually one person is in a conversation, is over the shoulder shots. One person's to the right of the frame, another person's to the left of the frame, you know, and that's kind of how it's cutting back and forth. But let's say then all of a sudden they flip the camera around and then, you know, then it's the opposite. And then just where they're the, the vantage point of where they're filming from, it would just throw the audience off It'd be like, wait, what's happening right now? So it's, it could be the most confusing during dialogue scenes, especially. So I would say when, when do you not break it is dialogue, unless you're purposely trying to be jarring. Now, if it's purposeful, let's say it's a horror film, it's, it's some sort of psychological thriller. Like I remember the movie stay, they would break the 180 rule, Ryan Gosling and, I think he was talking to Ewan McGregor, who was a psychologist, and the director purposely, it was a good example of how a director purposely breaks that rule where it's very effective. Um, so just know if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, it's gonna be jarring. And that could be okay if that's what you're going for. But if not, then you know, right. stay away from breaking the rule. And if you do, if you have yeah, to for some technical reason, like Indio said, then at least, you know, smooth out the transition with an insert. You know, show a shot of a clock, show a shot of maybe some somebody writing something down. It could be anything, you know, but break break it up. Yeah, and if you're going to take a rule to break it for, you know, creative purposes, then obviously, you know, that's that's what you're doing as <laughs> as a creative. So, um, you know, there is the the one eighty rule, but just as Zeph said, if uh, if that's your intent, then that's what it is. But know that that's what the result is going to be, is that the audience is going to be kind of disorientated. Yes. All what right. was the second part of that question? I think it was... I think, I think we covered it. Like, when do you break it and how? Okay. You know, and and okay, we, covered, yeah, sure. we, we covered it pretty well. So, so good, great question from Victor. Uh, all right, so now we're going to jump into it's a question good. from... Damien and Damien okay. and also Victor, they're essential workers, so they couldn't be here. They sent questions ahead of time. Okay. Um, yeah. Damien's asking, what are advantages and disadvantages to working on live versus scripted content? So working on, mm. well, you do sports stuff, so you could talk, certainly talk about yeah. doing stuff live and you've, you know, done a lot of scripted work yourself. So you're actually, the perfect person to ask about this. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, with with sports. So, for say uh, a Knicks game, we um, just as a matter of um, you know rules and 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 getting to work, we're typically our call time is six hours before uh, game start. So for a seven thirty game, um, call time is one thirty, and when I do the Knicks games, I am a handheld operator. So I'm underneath the basket and I usually am with the away feed. So whoever's in town, um, say the Miami Heat, the LA Lakers, whatever, they fly in their director. They're using, you know, a truck, a production truck with local guys. All the other guys are local. The TD, the technical director, uh, is a local guy, and I think the well, the director and the producer, they both fly in. Everybody else, audio, uh, the engineer is with the truck, uh, and then you have video, which is a local, and they're the ones that color correct all the cameras, make sure everything is good when we fax out. And so during um, or just before the game, you know, we have our camera meeting, and it's it's basketball, so you kind of know what's what's going on, right? And there are certain cameras that the director will take from the home feed, and then he will utilize uh, the local crew that he has for himself to be centric to his team. So that, you know, is being fed to whatever city, you know, that is. And so, you know, we have our pregame open. We have... Uh, player warm-ups, all this stuff. So we're just getting all of that for, you know, feeding tape and uh, so that they can build their packages together. The producer already has kind of his game plan of what he's doing, right? So um, then the director is the, the person who's going to make sure everything happens. And when you have a game going on, you kind of know your assignment. You have your, your orders of what you're going to be covering, uh, when there's a whistle blown, where do you go? Um, any color, colorful shots you're going to get during timeouts, you know, you're going to get fans, all that stuff. So all of this stuff is pre-planned. And so for, you know, that time frame, for that two and a half, three hours, you're pretty much in the zone of doing that. And it's, you know, out to the world. There's replay operators that are taking all the feeds and, they're creating all of these packages, and that's how you see all of the replays that go out towards to commercial and stuff like that. They're able to play that out. And then on some of the bigger shows, they have someone who actually edits packages so that they can um, put that cinematic flair to it, you know, that we often see, especially in NFL um, games. And, yeah, so that's the live aspect of it. And, you know, once it's done at the end of the two and a half, three hours, you know, you put your camera down back in the truck and you're gone. That's it. It's done, you know. And they do a melt, which is pretty much uh, taking chunks of the live game so that they send it off to Sports Center and all the outlets so that they can take highlights off of that. And then obviously in scripted, you know, there's a, there's a whole big process to that, right? And so, you know, preparing for it, the pre-production, uh, preparing for all of the uh, things that you're going to need to do. And oftentimes, uh, especially that, you know, we, we've carried on multiple, multiple hats where me, I'm the cinematographer, 
but I'm my own <laughs> assistant cameraman, um, you know, camera. Yes. I am, you know, I am my own everything. So yeah, exactly. it's just not, you know, it, it, you know, I'm my focus puller, you know, all these different things that, you know, you would typically have a position for. And I've so, had quite a bit of that experience when I worked at IBM. I was the DP. I was the director. I was the editor. I was the shooter. I was a, I was a one man army, honestly, just on all these different shoots. And I had just come off working on a feature film where I had 20 people working with us at, you know, certain days of the shoot. And then it was sort of a humbling experience jumping back into it, how I first got started. Um, but it was good because then wearing all those different hats, then you kind of understand the whole process better. So whether you're working as a filmmaker just by yourself and you're doing documentary esque sort of things, doing everything, writing, directing, producing, you know, um, you know, I guess less writing if there's a documentary, but sometimes, you know, it depends on what you're shooting. You still want to have that pre-production process. I'm sh- I know I know Indio well enough to know that um, he has his checklist of things that I'm sure he does for every shoot and his equipment list. And you know, I'm sure you're the. I know just from knowing you as a person. I know you, I know you're the type of guy that's going to make sure your batteries are charged and you're not leaving things up to chance. So all those all those things right, are exactly. important. Um, okay. Yeah, so actually, Courtney. This ties into Courtney's question. How do you best plan for a shoot? And this, so this is a perfect segue onto planning. We could maybe talk a little bit about the pre-pro, the pre-production process. Yeah. In, in pre-production, uh, it can start as early as just the conceptualization of, of an idea. And again, this is coming from the independent filmmaker uh, point of view. If I'm thinking of a concept that I want to do or um, even oftentimes with someone that I know is going to be putting something together and they just want my, you know, my two cents, my opinion, um, my criticism, uh, if need be, it's always about, all right, what can I, um, what can I do now to help me at the end when it's on the screen? And, you know, certain things you want to be able to uh, work out ahead of time, like if you're writing a story that you want to film eventually, write a story that you know you can do right off the bat. Don't write a story that is going to take you, uh, you know, into the streets of New York City in a car chase with pyrotechnics and stunts and all of that, right? It's just explosions and fire. I was going to say the same thing. Explosions, yeah, explosions and fires and, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. a hundred different extras exactly. reacting in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, don't think of those things, you know, right now uh, on the, you know, shelter in place orders, it would be a good time to figure out like blanking again on the movie that took place in the one bedroom, the whole 90 minutes of it. Do you remember that? I can't remember it, but there has been, there's so many, uh, um, there's been plenty of films like that over the years. So I don't know which one you're referring to in particular. What, what era was it? from? I could see it. Uh, it, this is probably, 80s, I want to say, in the 80s. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm my dinner with Andre. Was, was very, 
Was yeah, I think that was my it. dinner with I Andre. Think that might be it. It was a great film. Yeah, it all yes, took place yes, at a restaurant. Yes, yeah. Conversation between two friends, but just the performances and the subject matter, what they're talking about. Somehow, it's cinematic and engaging. And it was a French director. That right. Well, yeah. Well, that that was actually another one. The one I'm thinking about was in a bedroom, um, which was something uh, totally different. But again, with planning, you didn't like you didn't feel like, man, I need to get out of this room. You know, like yeah. it was it was just compelling and, and you were there. Um, so you want to be able to really think, you know, everything through. And again, things are going to be, you know, they're going to fall through the cracks. That That's just the nature of the beast. But I always tell, you know, when I, when I teach classes at the, uh, at the public access network or whatever, it's just always is the five P's proper preparation, prevents or performance. If you prepare yourself to, in, in essence, have plan A, B, and C, then you're going to be okay. Now, in this preparing, you know, once you have the script, is breaking down that script, what are you going to shoot? Uh, oftentimes, you might have to shoot out of sequence, you know. The one big thing is going to be, uh, I think this was one of the questions, when uh, one of the keys to um, that should be attended to when on set if there is one I think that was a question someone had posted um, and I will answer that now and that's time time is going to be um, your most important factor when doing things and every second counts that yeah. every second yeah, when you're on that, set every second counts so there's it, think of it like absolutely that's like peak hour time right if it's like if there was a time that was worth more money you know, like that would be the most valuable time is when you're on set, you know, versus pre-production where, you know, you could, you have more time, you know, it's that time is cheaper in a sense, according to your budget, literally, literally according to your budget on the film. Absolutely. And it's in that pre-production time that will allow for you to have the maximum amount of time on set um, used and, um, worked out productively. Um, so yeah, if you're if you're going to um, break down your 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 scenes in the script and, and get everything in order, storyboard so you know exactly how the shot is going to look, what lens you're going to do. You did some tests. You sat down with your actors and you did some table reads. You the actors know exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And you might do a little bit of blocking or the director might do a little bit of blocking when you're on set. But other than that, if you have all of these things in place when you walk in, and I usually, I walk around with uh, a one to two inch binder. And just like Zepp was saying, I'm very- That's like, like a Bible. This with all my, yeah, my Bible, exactly. It, it is a Bible, um, a production Bible. And you have everything in there. You have your call sheet, you have your script. You have your scene breakdowns. You have your, um, if you're, you know, able to have storyboards. Um, and even if it's stick, fi- I can't draw to save my life. Same. But, but all you need, or quick note on that: all you need are those stick figures or rough sketches. I've said this to my students: like, yeah. it doesn't have to be perfect storyboards. It just has to be a means of communication nope. with you, your DP, and your crew, just to like, hey, literally, here's what's going on. Because nobody's going to really see yeah. those outside of your crew. And it just, right. those, those it could be stick figures. Scorsese does them. You know, a lot of directors 
do, and I, I certainly yeah. do. I make, I'll, I'll show you guys um, on a future cast exactly yeah. what I've done in the past. Um, but yeah, and yeah. then um, I've, I've also gone through because as a cinematographer, I always look for references in terms of color palette and shots and compositions and all that. So I oftentimes do screenshots of movies that have inspired me, and those are my storyboards. You know. So it's those things those that are you references can do that are important, get, especially yeah. for lighting diagrams yeah, or just like any kind of frame mm-hmm. of reference. Like literally, it could be the frame is the reference of your composition of the shot. Any ready? Yeah, it's it's a great idea to do. I've done that um, a bunch myself. You know, uh, well, it's a good idea yeah. actually having them on set as well. You know, but I've certainly done things like that with with my DP ahead of time in pre pro yeah. the pre pro meetings. Yeah, and I've actually seen, I don't know if you've seen it yet, Zev, and I, I can't recall the name of the software, but there's actually a software in beta right now that is just incredible so that it, it can allow, it allows you to, you know, storyboard out by utilizing a library of existing movies, and you can basically, like, create your storyboards based on those themes, the color palette, and then you can change the color palettes of those existing movies and I don't know how they're doing it, how they they're compiling this library, but it's the demo that I saw. That's amazing. I, think I might have passed through it on on Instagram. It it is amazing. So, yeah. If you find out the I name of that software, I I'm curious yeah. if there's so recently I produced a horror short film called The Smiler, and I know the director used a, a new software, and I'm curious if it because and he was talking about how amazing it is. So I'm I'm wondering if it's the same one that you're just mentioning. Um, but yeah, if you find out the name of it, India, please uh, share it with me, and I'll also share it with you guys. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Cool. And so this, yeah, I mean, that, those are the things that you want to do. So important, and it actually ties nicely into Michael's uh, next question. Michael, who's on the line, has uh, his question is: What key detail should be attended to when you're on set, if there is one? Um, it's a good question. I have some ideas about this. That. Maybe I, I want to talk about for a moment. There's a rule of thumb that I learned from a DP when I was first starting out because we had some, a, a problem that happened and he's, you know, he was a little bit more seasoned than I was at the time. He's like, Hey, you know what? He's like, here's something I learned in film school. If when in doubt, always stick to this. And it's like, there's always five stages when you're on set as one of the key people you know, like whether you're the director, whether you're the DP, whether you're the producer, you know, the people that are really sort of running the set, you should always be in one of the, these five stages of production, which is block, light, rehearse, tweak, shoot, right? So blocking is the movement of the actors, for those that you don't know. So you, when you do your blocking rehearsal, that's literally where are you staging your actors? If one actor is coming through the doorway. He sits down at the desk. Then he picks up a cup of coffee, and the cup of coffee is the cue for one of his colleagues to pull up a seat and sit down next to him. That is the blocking. So as the director, you're going over the blocking of the scene with those actors. Now, um, then after, let's say, you, you do that blocking rehearsal, then your DP sees the configuration, the, the whole line of action, what vantage points are you going to shoot it from, what's your frame, then your DP, your cinematographer is going to light that accordingly. 
So that's the blocking, that's the lighting. The rehearsing is then you do a run-through. You actually have your actors do it after it's lit, you know. There might be some tweaking involved. So that's the tweaking, like, hey, you know what? The light is casting a shadow here that's kind of distracting, and we want to get rid of that shadow. So you tweak it out. You know, it could be all kinds of things like that. Um, and then you actually shoot it, you know. Call scene one, take one, pull out the slate, and you, you're recording. That's what you've been preparing for. So that's the shooting phase is pretty explanatory. So block, light, rehearse, tweak, shoot. You should always be in one of those stages and i think that's it's it's just a good rule of thumb if you're directing or if you're one of the key creatives on running the set so what do you think indio when when you're on set is there any rules of thumb is there any sorts of kind of pertinent ideas that you want to talk about yeah i mean to to echo what you were saying is imperative that um in order to do those those five principles um you know, those all affect the same thing, time. So, and if you have limited time at a certain location or with certain, um, you know, actors, especially if you're using kids and stuff like that, that you can't use them all day, they only have a four-hour day type deal, you have to be cognizant of that time. So, you know, preparing before everything is going to be, you know, the first thing you want to do. And then that relationship that the director, the DP, the producer um, may have has to be airtight. You can't get to set and then all of a sudden change your mind or want to try something new and all that. If, if there's something that's absolutely not working and, and, and there's a resolution that has to be made, that's one thing. But again, to keep mindful of that time, we're not oftentimes afforded the ability to have a first AD on set. So you have to know what you're doing in terms of your time of day because everything has a snowball effect. If the morning went a little too long because you didn't anticipate that, you know, somebody didn't bring an extra bulb for one of the lights or whatever the case may be. So somebody had to run out. Now you're pushing past your lunch hour and, you know, crafty, if you're the crafty and you have to go run out because you're the only one with the car, whatever the case may be. That's why you always have to prepare for the worst and, and, and hope for the best, right? You just have to ensure that, that everything is managed properly. I mean, the director's job is essentially to be that manager of everything that's happening and what's going on and part of that management skill is going to be able to delegate to others so you don't have to worry about things you don't have to micromanage manage everything and so the biggest thing that i say is to be cognizant of what you're doing in terms of your time when you're shooting if you like a take then move on don't say, oh, let me do another one just to, you know, get a different perspective on it. If you liked the take, if that's what you were looking for initially, move on. That's good advice. Great advice, actually. Um, all right. Good question so far, guys. So here's a question. Victor's, que Victor's next question sort of ties into Damien's one of Damien's questions. So I kind of want to list out both questions. Victor's question is what advanced skill have you acquired as a cinematographer? And Damien's question is, what would you say 
what skill trait have you developed the most from doing cinematography that you, you know, up to date, I guess what, let, yeah, let, think, maybe let's focus on a skill that you, that has been so important to you in your path of cinematography. Yeah, I think, you know, with being a cinematographer, you have to always adapt and, that adaptation is something that not too many can do well. I'm not the best at it, but I continue to learn and I'm willing to learn how to adapt, be it technology, uh, be it the you know lighting schematics that a, a place may or may not have, um, the limitations you have in terms of, you know, grip you know like the grip is so important that you know oftentimes you want to be able to do something but you just don't have the ability to do it in the way that is going to one um you know light the way you want it to light and two be safe for um everyone involved i mean the biggest thing on set is safety um and you yeah, never want so to put important. anyone safety and, and in jeopardy yeah and so and there you know, have been those, actual horror stories the, i don't know if you guys know you know especially the students some of you might not be aware that um a little less than 10 years ago maybe like seven eight years ago there there were shooting, jones yeah they were shooting a movie in georgia i think it was about the allman brothers the band it was like a biopic or something and um there was she you know she was i forget was she a grip on the, on the movie was she a production assistant but she was one of the crew people and they were she was she was in she was uh, yeah uh, I, I believe she was an AC yeah an assistant camera so was she an AC or yeah 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 whatever she was she was on on the film crew and sadly um she she got struck by a train because they were shooting in an area that the producers said hey we could film here you know it's not going to be a problem you know everything is good to go but it wasn't and then they didn't do their due diligence and actually i think one of the producers went to jail and obviously understandably so because you know this poor girl died on, during production so safety right. it's it's not just a word we throw around there's there's such great importance to it because god forbid like we're we're, we're creating films and we're creating things that are important to us, but it's not a, more important than somebody's life and somebody's well-being. So it's it's something that I'm glad that you mentioned that a lot of people sort of gloss over, they don't realize about. And especially when we're starting out and we're doing things run and gun, we don't always have permits, right? You know, but we have to at least consider the safety of the crew, consider the well-being, and, you know, do your do your homework, do your due diligence, like, you know, don't don't put your crew's lives in danger over these things. And, you know, some of that danger sometimes could be in the electric wiring, like things that you don't even think about, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, any overheads, you know, that you might put on if it doesn't have the safety cable, stuff like that, those little things, you know, um, uh, even I, I know um, very, <laughs> the guys that I, that I've hired, um, they know like if you lay down a stinger, you better make sure it's taped down or it's run in such a way that no one, no actor, no, I, I don't care who it is. If they walk by, it's not going to snag them and, and have them yeah. fall. And, you know, and so, for those of you yeah, that don't um, know, so Sarah Jones. Yeah. Stinger is an extension cord 
most oh, yeah, most yeah, people sorry. probably know, yeah, but yeah. you know, some people haven't worked on sets so much yet. And they're starting right, out. Okay, so a stinger is what us in the film world call an extension cord. There's almost like a second vocabulary. Would you agree, Indio, of like all these different yeah, things that you almost just yeah, have to know what absolutely. it is from experience, you know? Look, and honestly, I, I learn about new terms all the time because there are terms that different regions of the country have for certain things too. So, yeah. you know, it just depends. So you, you always get to be like, oh, okay, yeah, we call that this and that, you know? So, but um, to go quickly back to Sarah Jones, it, the movie was Midnight Rider and she was struck by a train. Yeah, it was the Greg Allman biopic. Uh, she was struck by a train um, and died on set and she was, she was an AC and I remember they actually had the footage uh, of it because everybody was scrambling and they were trying to get uh, stuff that they had already put onto the, the tracks. They had like, uh, you know, some props. And so it was the props that knocked her and then it was, it was just oh, a nightmare. But so, yeah. if you ever see on set going forward, the name Sarah Jones on a slate, that's why they have it because it became like this big thing within the industry um, safety, you know, um, policies and everything changed because of Sarah Jones. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, well, really, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you said everything about on these topics, really pertinent topics, including safety. Um, and I like, and I also like the fact that you talked about adapting. So I just want to talk about that for a moment because we're living in times where we have to adapt <laughs> right now with everything that's going on. You know, it's like, a lot of us are working from home. Obviously, there's social distancing. And I know that I've been talking a lot about, hey, what, what, what could we do remotely right now? What could we think about? You know, maybe now, you know, I'm just giving an example. Now might be a time to brush up on motion graphics. Um, thanks, Courtney. I see Courtney standing by. Glad to have you on. Uh, but it's okay. now is, you know, a time to just do some writing. You know, I, I've been doing some writing, just whatever we could do, you know, and just adapting, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, you know, the best thing to do, too, especially with this time and, you know, I, I surely have had time to and because I wanted to is to take a look at more film and, and even, you know, TV programs. I mean, there's certainly some TV programs that the cinematography and is like, wow, this is amazing, you know? And so, cause I do a lot of sit down interviews too. So I, I take, you know, from that it was like, Ooh, I like this technique and you know what they did there. Um, a buddy of mine, you know, he does sports, right? He does NFL films and everything, but he does all of the, you know, the cinematic packages for them too. So I always pick his brain and sometimes I'll be like, Hey, you know, when you need a utility, cause I need to, you know, I need to get, you know, uh, get to you and, and, and see what you're working on now and how you're doing it, you know, because of different changes in, in lighting, you know, quasar science with the, with the lightsaber lights, you know, the LEDs and, and stuff like that. So things are constantly changing. So, you know, to be in the mix of all of, all of it is going to be good for you because you're, you're able to, you know, to see what's happening and, and adapt to it. Yeah, but, but uh, definitely yeah, adapting, start so. watching films, you know, study, you know, what you like about films and again, put your own little spice to it and it becomes your own. I mean, there are so many talented uh, directors and cinematographers out there, but guaranteed that 
what they do is just a, as we say in, in Spanish, you know, a sancocho is just like a great soup with just a whole bunch of different elements in it. And, you know, each one gives it its flavor. You know, I like that. <laughs> great analogy. And before I open it up, first of all, I want to gauge how, how are you doing on time? Because I have one more question that I want to open it up to a Q&A. But I know it's 10 o'clock already. So I just oh, my, my yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I ain't got nowhere to go. Right, <laughs> Same here. I guess we're all in that boat. <laughs> all right, cool. But great great questions so far, guys. Um, so Damien's yeah, question you. is more of a question. Yeah, yeah. And great job answering the questions in India. So I'm like psyched to have you on because I knew it would be great. I'm trying. Um, um, so Damien's next question is more of a fun one. It's, and uh, maybe this would be as, as you do in your scene and take podcast, like a rapid fire one. What are two directors alive or deceased okay. that you'd like to work with and why? Alive, Ang Lee, uh, deceased, uh, John Singleton. Um, Ang Lee um, has always been a director that I've admired um, his work. That's a it's good just, one. That's like an unexpected yeah. answer, but I like that answer um, because he is a visionary <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of director. He, has, he does, and because he has such a diverse amount of work, and he's done you know different genres and different things. So to me, that is you know that's the the ultimate. When you know uh, I, I love baseball, right? And, and one of the most coveted types of players is the five tool player the player that has the ability to excel in five different components of the game and do it super well. And that's like your all around baseball player, the best baseball player in the world right now, currently, although we don't have a baseball season is Mike Trout. He's a five tool player. He can run, he can hit and throw, he can do all of these different things. And so he can individually and singularly change the game when he's in it, you know, and so that is what Ang Lee is to me. He's one of those types of directors. I mean, from The Ice Storm to Life of Pi, you know, um, it, 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 Crossing Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he's been one of those directors that, you know, crossing fingers and toes that one day I'd be able to be on a set with, that that would be the ultimate for me. Yeah. Um, deceased, uh, John Singleton, um, John Singleton, you know, for me as a person of color, it, you know, it, it rings personally also because uh, he is a member of uh, of the fraternity that, that, that I'm in. And, you know, I didn't although know we were different age groups. Yeah. Yeah. We Rest were in different peace age to John Singleton. Everything else, great, great director and great guy. Yeah. I didn't know him, but just like, yeah. like just from what I know about him and from what I've heard from people that have met him, they said he was such a great guy and fantastic director. Yeah. Boys in the Hood. Me and Rashad Ernesto yeah, and Green you, were talking about that at length. That the podcast. Don't know if you heard that. Exactly. I remember. Yeah. 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 I remember. Yeah. I remember that nice. that that he was talking about, and that's kind of you know what struck me again in that, and, and to think of how he did you know his movies like you know Boys in the Hood when he was so young, and uh, and I'm sure he you know had some bumps on the road, but he told a story that hadn't been told in the way that it was told, right? And it resonated with with me because there was, you know, brown people on the screen. There was, you know, although it's LA and LA culture is totally different than the New York and Bronx culture, it still resonated with me. You know, it, it, I, I felt like 
um, you know, it could have been somebody from my neighborhood. And, you know, I mean, to, to have, you know, a person lost through violence, you know, I went through that, you know, there were people that, that I knew and then played baseball with that, you know, a few years later, they were, they were gunned down, you know? So yeah. it was one of those movies um, and, and him at the helm, it, it just gave me such a, an outlook that, you know what, you put your mind to it, you can get anything done. And even still at the time when, you know, it came out in the early nineties, I was always enamored by filmmaking, but, uh, you know, support at home wasn't necessarily there. I was still in high school too, but, you know, as I got older, I appreciated more. And, you know, I went into the music industry actually for a little bit before I came over on this side. So it's, he's been always one that I've wanted to work with. And, you know, the crazy thing about it, before he passed away, I have a buddy of mine that's, he's a TV writer now. He's from the Bronx, Larry Spivey. Um, and, you know, is that that six degrees of separation started getting, like, more narrow. So it was like, you know, that I know Larry. Larry knew someone. Someone knew John Singleton. So, you know, at some point, who knows? We might have crossed paths. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Definitely shout out to our friend Larry Spivey. Hopefully Larry will come yeah. through for for a future cast. That'll be a good one. Oh as well. yeah, I'm sure he will. Um all right guys, so let's let's open it up. Um let's you know, get unmute yourselves. If you wanna flip on your cameras, you could do that. And we just wanted to open it up to a little Q and A. I really again, I'm so appreciative of you being on Indio. Aside from being close friends, then we're also uh members of the Bronx Filmmakers Collective. And, um, you know, I knew you'd do a great job, which you are, so thank you. So let's let's open it up. All right, hold on one second. Let me switch my view. Hey, Ryan, good to see you. Thanks for joining, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Hey, what's up, Ryan? Hey. Ryan, do you have what's any questions well? that you want to throw in? Like, what really got you into film? That's a good one. Um, you know, film for me was like uh, the the creative aspect that I always wanted to participate in, um, and it's kind of yeah, it's it's a, it's evolved itself, right? Because I do TV production and stuff like oh. that, and and film always gives you kind of that that outlet to do something that you can do and then again you know um the representation you know is getting better now finally but you know it helps when you see people and 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 you know feel like you can be a part of that storyline if you know there's somebody out there that looks like you you know so i wanted to do films that kind of would be in that you know in that realm Okay. Nice. How are you doing, Michael? Hey, how you guys doing? Hey, what's up, Michael? Good, good. It was, I honestly, um, I guess I, I just wrote down, I guess, the five things you do on set, which are block, light, uh, rehearsing, tweet, and shoot. Um, nice. Yeah, that'll help you kind of always keep the needle moving forward. I think I think with that you guys got me. Like I kind of, 
I kind of understood the explanation, but, you know, I guess maybe on set, someone would have to help me out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, and if you if there's any part of it that you want us to elaborate on, I'll be happy to elaborate on it. Was there any? So you understand the shooting, obviously. It's like that's when you're actually recording, but you know, there's there's different yeah. stages to kind of prepare for the recording, right? So it's like there's different, you know, blocking is when, as the director, you're going over that like that the movement of the actors, like where are they physically going. Lighting is then when the DP the cinematographer, you know, those are interchangeable terms really um, where they're setting up the lighting with the, the, you know, the camera and lighting department, you know, then the tweaking block light rehearse, you know, rehearsing is just when you have the actors coming into the frame and they're actually, you're, do, you're doing like a dry run of it. So that's what the rehearsal thing is. You're, you're doing a dry run and then the DP is looking through the camera. They're seeing if it's lit properly and if it's not, there might be some tweaking. They might have to adjust a light here or, you know, move a reflector or a flag there. A flag is could block or sculpt light. Then, you know, then you're actually shooting it. So does that all make sense? And always record rehearsals. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. Good call. I always, I, I, I always, I always do because you never know. Yeah, you and never know. You might as well, right? You slate. But then, yeah, you, it, then the question is, do you slate? the recordings of those rehearsals? Um, no. Um, sometimes, well, sometimes. Uh, yeah. You might, you know, just have a slate just in case, you know, you kind of want to add that to the pot. But if it, in fact, becomes like just, you know, rehearsal and it was spot on or whatever, then you would, you know, at that point make... Wouldn't one, hurt to do a tail slate, you know, right? take on the slate. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. A tail exactly. slate and then is now, the you know... Yeah. And then, you know, the thing is, too, is like because it's digital, um, it's a little easier than when it was film stock and all that. Exactly. I'm not I never dealt with film, but, you know, now it's, it's so easy. You, you have immediate playback. You can watch it for 30 seconds and be like, yo, that was the one we ain't even got to go. You know, let's move on. Yeah, we it's got a good it, idea. You know? so I, I do it sometimes, but I think it's a good things. idea to always I like you. I'm glad you're mentioning it because I think I'm going to adopt just always doing it. You know, um, I think probably the only times that and, I haven't done it before is because I'm concerned about, you know, recording audio separately. And then it's like, do you slate or whatever? But, you know, it might as well just roll it, you know, even if it's on the download, like, you know, like you don't have to tell the actors they're going to roll it and maybe you might get something spontaneous, you know? So it's, it's right. actually. A, and a, an, another thing too. Yeah. Another thing too, with that is that, um, oftentimes in playback and this happened to me a couple of times in playback, when you're looking at the screen, you kind of like really, you know, being meticulous and, and where your eyes are going and everything like that. Sometimes you find, you know, something that's out of place that doesn't belong there. You know, the, 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 the famous example of the Starbucks cup on the, on the table, for the game of Thrones type deal, you know? So, you know, the, the, the types, those types of things happen. I mean, there's uh the other day I was watching with my kid, you know, we were watching Shazam and there's a whole scene in the mall and, you know, they were doing crowd control for the some crew members or whatever, but they're in the shot, right? <laughs> so they're like, oh, what the hell are we going to do, you know? And then they basically uh, rotoscoped them a little bit and added them to holding bags and stuff like that, like, really quickly. So it looks like they were shoppers, 
<laughs> you know, so <laughs> those are the types of things you got to do, and even with big budgets, you know, things yeah, happen. But that's true. Um, even with to be budgets. able to, you know, record, yes, and, and and to record the, you know, the rehearsals is is to have another set of eyes too to look at the frame and see what what's happening and what's going on. And oftentimes, the uh, you know, the DP will want to look at playback just to see how it lo- it's looking, you know, yeah. because he's looking up, he's looking at the screen, you know, and different things. So. Yeah, yeah, I find that my DP wants to look at the playbacks more often than I do, you know, <laughs> as the director. Yeah, yeah, um, no, exactly. Yeah. I know, I, I know, I do. I, yeah. I, because I'm, I'm like scanning everything, you know, I'm, I'm scanning every inch of that frame. And I just want to add to this topic that I think there's two types of directors too. There's some directors that like to live behind video village, video villages like the monitors that are set up, you know, and. uh they're right. not always set up that way. There's not always a video village, but uh, especially on well, bigger, not, bigger not sets. Not in independent filmmaking. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but on... Well, uh, let me not say independent filmmaking, but our low-budget yeah, independent like micro, filmmaking. I have, no I have budget. friends that... Yeah, I have friends that do independent filmmaking, but their budgets are still in the millions, and that's low-budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so low-budget yeah, is relative. term, yeah. It, it is... Yeah, <laughs> it's relative. Um, but we'll say like, you know, I guess for our sort of micro budget stuff that we've done, you know, um, there's, def- it's, def- it's definitely not a given that there's a video village. Um, and yeah. then, but so aside from that, there's some directors that like to just, you know, bury their head in the monitor, you know, they're not actually looking at the actors. Yeah. They're looking at the monitor, you know, from somewhere else on the set you know whether it's just a few feet away or whether it's further away you know on on bigger sets the video village is further away and it's more elaborate there's more monitors it's more blocked off from the rest of the thing that's going on and my answer to that is i think there's great directors that do both i think there's great directors you know that are watching the actors like tarantino is is a director that does not sit behind video village he's looking he's trusting his dp you know that the dp is going to do exactly what they're supposed to do and then he's actually watching the actors on set i know werner herzog has talked about that he has a stronger opinion on it that he thinks that great directors aren't burying their heads in video village that they're actually watching the actors i'm the kind of director that i'm usually watching the actors you know i'm you know i trust my dp you know I, i like to scan the frame i like to kind of still be in, very involved with the technical aspects I, i'm i'm fairly a technical director in terms of you know the level that i get involved with the technical aspects of the film but at, when it comes to actually shooting you know i'm i'm actually kind of watching the actors usually um and then sometimes scanning for a quick playback you know when i can yeah, you have you have people like James Cameron that he'll actually you know throw the camera on his shoulder for certain shots because he wants to do it. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. You know that, yeah. that Kubrick was like that, that, that too. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and that that's the kind of you know that's the kind of one. Ridley Scott I'd certainly be, like know, is like um, that. You know. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. All right. So so I know Matt's on the line. He was only able to join with the audio. How are you doing, Matt? Good to good to have you on the meeting. If you have any questions that you just want to shout out, feel free to jump in. 
Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, yeah, Matt. You. Yeah, I, I think I'm reading all this. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, your name's Harry, am I correct? Yeah, Harry. Yeah, Harry with an I. Yeah. Yes. So I, I have a question. So you you're a fan of Angry? I'm just wondering what your thoughts on because um, last few years he's been diving into the world of high freight. I'm sorry, high um, frame uh, high, high frame rate filmmaking. And I know a lot of people, they don't care. Um, they, some people I know downright, downright contest, um, high rate filmmaking, um, play frames per second and all that. But I'm just curious, number one, do you like it? And two, do you think it has a future? Because a lot of people think that it'll never have a future in film, at least not for mass audiences. It's a good question, Matt. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I think that. Again, it goes to the notion of adaptability. Um, you know, it irked me <laughs> a little bit when, like, Instagram started doing vertical video, right? And it was like, this is just how, you know, people are going to consume movies now and stuff like that. And I'm like, nah, this ain't going to go. And then all of a sudden, now you have the major, you know, brands, uh, commercials, you know, uh, there's music videos, there's, um, even trailers that are specifically set to the vertical video aspect yeah. ratio, right? So, again, it's going to be, you know, one of those things. I, I mean, people, I don't see too many people complain about when Peter Jackson did 48 frames per second for the, the Lords, you know, movies, um, and he did it, you know. And I think the, the biggest complainers was probably the actors when they were doing Take 73, because he is notorious for doing thousands of takes for one, you know, little scene. So um, I think angry, you know, pushing the envelope on, you know, doing stuff in high frame, higher frame rates is, is only going to uh, enhance his portfolio uh, because he will do things purposefully. He will do things, you know, with plan and, if it works for him, then, you know, it's going to enhance the story, not just be a gimmick to it and stuff like that. You know, there's there's a, a, a director that I watched his movie and his use of colors, slow motion, and, uh, you know, his composition, I've always, like, I've always enjoyed, and, and this one movie in particular, Heartbeats, it was a Canadian movie came out in 2010, I believe. And the actually, I think I might have just so that you guys can check it out. I do. Um, uh, let me just put the link in the chat. I think this is the link. Um, so it's a YouTube you. video, yeah. So nice. it's kind of like a, a sizzle reel of his of his work. The combination you're talking about high frame rates. He does a lot of slow motion stuff. I like slow motion stuff. I, you know, like one of the things I love doing just the past time is watch YouTube videos of all the YouTubers, you know, that have some really dope looking cinematography and they do all the 120 frame stuff. I mean, yeah, there's a little overkill, but there's some individuals that do it really, really yeah. well and tell a good story in their little B-roll. So 
There was you that know, whole show, that, um, show on the Discovery Channel when they would like blow things up or do certain things in slow motion and high speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the high speed cameras, the Phantoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And such you know, a good show. those things are. Yeah, my my buddy is one of the Phantom operators in the NBA, and it's just amazing. You know, like he he does. I think in most of the NBA arenas, you know, because lighting plays a part, right? With the with the amount of frame rate that you have, I believe he's he hovers around a thousand to twelve hundred frames per second. Wow! So he must be traveling and, like a madman. Not now, but just in general, when you know, on on, on the season. Yeah, I mean, he he's, he's probably like a, a couple times a week he's at a game. You know, when when LeBron was in Cleveland, he was in Cleveland like basically every home game. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Nice. So yeah. Maybe we have time for. So, man, I don't know if I did I answer your question. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think. Oh no, no, you you answered you answered well. I mean, I, I think that it does have a future. Do I think it's going to be like standard? No, definitely not. I think it's only going to be for maybe specific type of film. I think the reason why maybe people having some issues with it is like they say, well, look, you can see all the scenes basically, and right, like right. doing it like with like. Like the Hobbit, for example, like the complaint about the Hobbit was what looks like a set. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like wigs, you can see the latex makeup and all that. And I think maybe the best way to maybe use it is like uh, maybe just use actual like real life locations, maybe instead of maybe using that. I, mean, I thought the Hobbit looked good, but I can also see what people were talking about. And maybe just use actual real life locations instead of, you know, creating sets maybe doing things to make it make, make it more naturalistic instead of like using a lot of heavy makeup and stuff like that. I think that may right. be a good way to like well we get people yeah. into maybe maybe being... Yeah, there's always gonna be, you know, there's always gonna be changes in the industry, you know, uh, whether people jump on it or not. We actually the Bronx filmmakers, we had our first meeting on Zoom, you know, for the first time and uh, we had a presentation on visual effects. And the technology that's that's going on in visual effects is just is incredible. I mean, with now with the video walls and everything else, um, essentially just being able to you know to live key sets um, you know on a whole green screen stage. I mean, just looking realistic, like all of Mandalorian is that way. They have video walls, um, and there is the the YouTube video if you, if you just um, kind of type in the keywords, the Mandalorian, um, you know, visual effects, they'll, they'll have a video on it. But to see that kind of technology, um, that's going to, you know, change the game as well, where, you know, I don't necessarily, uh, on my budget, as long as I can rent, a, you know, a, a soundstage, a small soundstage that has a video wall, I can, I can immediately take it to Casablanca. I can, you know, I can go to, Paris if I want to and it's going to be realistic as hell you know so it's uh, it's advantageous to have the you know the wherewithal to say hey I'm going to try something in a different way and see if it works for me but I'm going to be in, intentional in what I want it to do for me nice good answer, answer. alright guys well maybe we Thank have you. time for one more question if anybody wants to jump in um, okay, one last question for me, Abby. Sure, go ahead, Michael. Um, I wanted to ask. Um, over the last few days, I've been hearing for the first time about a director named 
Akira Kurosawa. Classic and director. Great started, director. Oh, yeah. George Lucas loved him. I, I, okay. I want to ask you guys. I started trying to watch one of the movies to kind of pick up on what, you know, like, like his craft and what, what everyone resonates with when watching him. And I want to ask you guys what's your opinion on that. I'm not, I'm personally not too, too well versed in it, um, in him. And um, I don't know, Zeph, if you can speak so to that. So Akira Kurosawa yeah. was a famous Japanese film director that made The Seven Samurai. He made this movie called uh, Rashomon. He made Rojimbo. He made uh, a movie that I really love that's not as talked about as frequently called Throne of Blood, which was kind of uh, a samurai remake you know, in the, I think it was in the 1960s or 1950s. Yeah, of, didn't he of, make of a movie called Thin Fortress? Uh, Thin Fortress? Yeah, yeah. He did. that's the movie that was the main inspiration for Star Wars. Oh. Okay. That's right, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah. I remember talks about that, and then... The Hidden Fortress. I just... Yeah, I, I just don't, you know, like, yeah. I didn't do too much background in it because it was mid-century stuff. Um, but yeah. it's always good to, you know, get get those kind of perspectives on on films. Um, only because you see how it always, there's always a bit of somebody that, that leaves an impression on somebody. Like, you think, like, now we, you know, we know and love um the, the films that Scorsese has done, that Spielberg has done, George Lucas. I, I love Indiana Jones, um, you know, and, you know, just now knowing the background about that and how, um, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were, like, teamed up for it because before it came out and Star Wars and everything else, they still didn't have, like, the, the movie studios didn't have, like, that trust, if you could believe it or not in you know spielberg so you know and it was like george mm -hmm. lucas kind of being big brother and overseeing everything that was happening so um but now you know you just know and love everything that he's done and so yeah it, it's always about finding you know that one or two or ten um directors writers whoever there's something you know about something in particular in a movie that that catches your eye and and you want to explore it more. You want to kind of put your twist to it. You know, I grew up in the Bronx. Um, you know, hip hop is, is, you know, global now. And for the most part, it was about sampling other people's works for many, many years. Yeah. Akira Kurosawa, though, uh, I mean, we talked about blocking earlier, guys. I think one of the things that he was just a master at was blocking his actors and if you pay attention to his films just the you know the, just the compositions the shots and the way that the visuals tell the story of the film and using blocking as a means of evoking like an emotional resonance he was just so masterful at that you know and um but yeah he was he's a great director to study study their films and great stuff though all, all good questions from you guys really appreciate having you on Indio. always great talking to you and uh yeah, 
having me, man. Thank you. This was a good talk. All right, everybody. Appreciate you being on the cast. Stay safe out there, everybody. All right. Stay positive. Stay creating things. Be safe. Yeah.